Hello, welcome to the Weekly Song Podcast. Uh, my name is Roger Heathers. With me is Declan Kitchener. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. You know, just uh, keeping busy and trying... Isolating. Isolating, trying to keep well, trying to take care of my mental health and physical health. How about you? Well, how's, how's things? Broadly the same, except I'm look, not looking after myself. I'm just sort of... <laughs> I feel that's an appropriate description. I feel like I feel like these lockdown days are like you kind of get to see who you really are, and all the all the good it's habits depressing. you try to implement are like they just fall by the wayside. Yeah, so you know, you start off thinking like, oh, okay, I'm going to go out for a walk every day. I'm going to start eating better. I'm going to start doing all this, and then the little voice in the back of your head suddenly goes, "Yeah, but you're not going to do this once you go back to work, now, are you?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's um. I feel like if you can get a couple of months in of pretty good habits, I think that's a victory. Yeah, that's um, that's the end goals here. Uh, and we're back for a discussion episode. Uh, another one. Uh, which this time I think is gonna just be us having a bit of a chat about uh artists that we like and music that we like that doesn't necessarily class. Uh, as rock in any way uh, Roger and I are both big rock fans You know, most of my music library is made up of rock bands and everything like that and I just thought it would be interesting to sort of have a bit of a chat about um, uh, about some of the non-rock stuff we like yeah, yeah. Um, this was uh, your idea off the bat and um, I don't know but I, I get the feeling that I'm I have a few more non-rock genre artists i can kind of point to and uh you, you you're probably right on that one um <laughs> i was i was yeah. saying to roger before we started i've got somewhere around 1400 albums on my computer and about 1100 of them are rock albums or like they class as rock in some way <laughs> so yeah i've got a taste um <laughs> but rock music is very good it is but it's also kind of like a very broad descriptor, which has kind of made it a bit challenging for me to try and think of artists that I did or didn't like. Like particularly when you look at sixties or seventies pop music, uh, there's still a lot of it that incorporates rock elements. So it's kind of you're at a lost cause with those decades, unless you go to some particular areas, which we'll probably touch on later. Yeah, uh, as you get more and more towards. Uh, you know the 2010s and our new hip-hop overlords it suddenly becomes a lot easier to find <laughs> non-rock popular music yeah i mean definitely uh i mean i was just looking through my record collection literally as we started the call and uh you know i was looking oh carpenters they're not rock but actually they can be under the umbrella of rock and i was like oh pantera that's you know heavy heavy metal but you could still categorize it in the rock umbrella because the rock umbrella is a big umbrella it's a big, meaningless umbrella. Like, um, uh, I've tagged my albums on my computer, like, with if it's any form of rock, like country rock or uh, yacht rock or progressive rock or anything like that. Uh, it get also gets a rock tag. So I've uh, went when I was sort of checking which albums I had, I. Uh, put on a list on my computer right exclude anything that's got the tag rock in it and it's surprising some of the things that actually vanish like uh, for example carol king tapestry you wouldn't necessarily think of that as a rock record but according to wikipedia it is in some form 
Yeah, I mean, I think anything where somebody can be seen playing the guitar is uh, kind of considered rock music in some form. That's where I was going to go with this. Like, uh, you know, so much of rock is guitar music. Guitar is the instrument of rock, but it's not exclusively so. So when you sort of get guitar players popping up in other genres, elements of rock, uh, particularly once you go past the 60s, start creeping into everything. So it becomes it becomes uh, sort of weird to see how much it infects during the latter half of the 20th century. It's the people's instrument, man. Exactly. Uh, but let's stop talking about how difficult this was and actually start talking about... <laughs> the, uh, yeah, let's start talking about what we actually uh, ended up uh, finding. And I think we should probably end up starting with you because you sent me over a few tracks before um, we started recording today. Yeah, um, so, I mean, like I said, this was your idea and uh, you said, what about if we do non-rock album talk and i was like okay that's interesting because i'm into hip-hop you know i like um i like a lot of hip-hop artists particularly those and here's the interesting thing that kind of came to mind for me particularly those which um have the traditional hip-hop sound in terms of a certain style of drum beat a certain uh style of vocal you know namely a rapper you know um Mm. and a certain structure to the song so a lot of the time in hip-hop music um the verse is um very repetitive and then sometimes the chorus is exactly the same as the verse but with a different hook song or or rapped um so a lot of the hip-hop albums i love as opposed to just enjoy um use live instrumentation to some degree and uh the first one that i came up with um which is like that is uh this album music and our uh, music and our message by public enemy So yeah, I mean, Public Enemy sort of reached like a mainstream audience in 1988 with this album. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back, which is really heavy on the sampling and quite like revolutionary in terms of like what you could do with a sampler, especially with the technology of that time. And then, you know, it blew up and they kind of got big and, uh, you know, did quite well with that. And then in 1994, they released this album, which is, it's kind of, it's a kind of, it's got a cult audience, but it's largely regarded as very underrated. Um, called Music in Our Message. And uh, and uh, what they did on that album is they kind of like introduced a, a bunch of um, kind of riffs into the music rather than it just being like, you know, uh, Chuck D was saying he used to like, uh, him and the Bomb Squad used to sample like a, a squealing kettle you know, on the first album, on the second album. Um, but on this album, there's much more riffs and uh, if anything, it's kind of a bit more rocky, which I know isn't the point, but it's just to illustrate that you know I, I love these hip-hop albums which have that structure to them where it's like there's a definite verse there's a definite like changes and choruses and stuff so yeah that's a great album yeah you uh you sent across one of the tracks for that earlier i was kind of surprised by like the sort of textures on it i was thinking like oh is this all like um sampling of like what were contemporary records at the time but uh no it's so it's is it actually like live people playing I don't know the full story, but um, I read an article on it once, and I, I remember reading, oh, there's real drums. And you can kind of tell by the sound of the record, like, there's a real drummer. But I think it's a mixture between, like, real instrumentation, like they had a real guitar player and, excuse me, a keys player and that sort of thing on the record. But uh, it had that, like, sample-based stuff there too? I don't know. So it's kind of like half and half. Yeah. Uh, 
it's kind of cool. It makes for um, a more interesting texture. And um, yeah, I might have to give that uh, album a bit of a listen. Uh, but that is something I do respond to with the the, the little hip hop I listen to. Um, is live instrumentation like you know I absolutely love Laurel Carnot a bit mm. and um, you know there are tracks which are obviously sort of based on samples but then there are also tracks uh, which feature lovely jazzy guitar work Been a minute since I've been with some women. Not because they've been lacking, just I've been lacking the feeling. I've been staring at the ceiling. It's, in the chat that uh, it's always sort of nice to sort of get the feeling of a live band in there. Almost makes it more rocky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is going well. Yeah, that's that's kind of the danger with a few of these things. It's like, you go, like, oh, you know what I love about that Slick Rick album is when they have the rock riff in there. <laughs> like, no, that's not the point. We're trying to, we're trying to do non-rock. Yeah, well, I suppose that's the thing. Like, you can sort of say because rock is so pervasive, or at least it has been, uh, yeah. you can sort of use it as a gateway to other genres and such. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, it's um, it is interesting how a good guitar riff can influence a hip hop song, you know, uh, quite a lot. Especially if you sample it from like an old seventies record, um, like for example. Uh, you remember I showed you that song that I have a, like a picture disc of the record. I showed it to you once. Um, Nas, um, hip hop is dead. Uh, yes, in fact, I own the album on that one. I found that cheap secondhand, so I thought I'd give that a listen. Yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, that's that's a great example of um, it samples. Um, what do you call it? Iron Butterfly um, in the Garden of Eden. It samples that, but but I think it like samples it and then they play like real instruments around the sample, which just has such a cool feel to it. And then of course you got Nas rapping on it. That's a cool song. Uh, just to sort of. Ah, so you sort of do that as well when you've sampled things on the earlier winter tapes, like you'll like pump the bass up with a real performance uh, on top of a sampled thing. Is that sort of inspired by that? Um, sort of, but it's for me personally. Like whenever I'm making hip hop music or making a beat or something like that, I'll usually start with a sample because it has a certain like live feeling to it. And it kind of gets you started, and then just the thing in me, whether it's ego or boredom or whatever it is it just thinks hey i can play the guitar why don't i play the guitar on this sample and then i just end up you know singing all over it or playing all over it <laughs> look at me i'm playing guitar with led zeppelin <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the most um egregious example of that was um this song i did where i it's like a most deaf remix it was called mathematics um and uh i sampled i think it was cashmere by led zeppelin and then at the end of the song, I, I take a solo instead of Jimmy Page. <laughs> Look at the ego on that guy. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, I'm going to have to no, go Jimmy, back and listen Jimmy, to that. I've got this one. Take a seat. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Keep playing the riff, bud. I'll just, uh, I'll take over from here. This 19-year-old can handle this. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but, yeah. It's a... Uh... Public Enemy wasn't the only uh, hip hop track you sent over to me beforehand. You actually uh, sent over some Kendrick Lamar as well. Uh, 
Yeah, um, I, th- I was kind of late to the Kendrick Lamar um, party, I guess you could say, because um, he had this uh, this big mixtape come out, I think in 2008 or 2010, around that time, um, and it was called... Uh, what was it called? I don't remember. Um, but anyway, he had this big mixtape come out, and it was kind of like a cult hit for, for the hip-hop community and stuff, um, but it was very influenced by Kanye West's um, production, and then he released his first debut album, like a full proper album that was in the shops and everything, and it was called Good Kid, Mad City, and that's the album that I put down here, and it's it's... It's really good. It's um, it's kind of got a few elements of a different of a few different things. Um, you know, uh, some gospel elements in there, um, R and B, um, sort of Motowny type of elements, but all with this hip hop production underneath it. And uh, each song's very different. I think that's what I like about it. It's a real kind of smorgasbord of different ideas. Um, and uh, and he's a great rapper, really good rapper. The the song I sent you, um, oh, what was it called? I think I sent you the art of freestyling, or was it? Um, no. Ah, damn it! My brain's not working today. The peer pressure song, whatever that's called. I forget what it's called. I usually know the names of songs. I'll um, edit uh, the titles in just like really close <laughs> up onto the mic, like really <laughs> unprofessional, like just breathing all over it, just to make it a treat for our listeners. Um, no, but I've. Uh, heard his what's the big famous one uh pimp a butterfly and i've heard bits of damn as well and i have to agree with everything you're saying like it's it's as much genre roulette as i think a hip-hop album can be it's in like you've got like these different sort of styles going through the tracks and everything to the point where i think towards the end of um uh pimp a butterfly it ends up just being like a big conversation it's just like oh, okay you can put this on an album yeah i mean I mean, just to quickly go on a bit of a tangent with that, I feel like Kendrick Lamar is an interesting person to look at his albums because that first, um, I want to say it's called Project 90 or Project 50. Anyway, I'm not going to get hung up on that. That first EP was so generally hip-hop. It could could be, you know, you could put it in a lineup with 10 other hip-hop albums and you go, okay, right, you know, they're kind of all the same general aesthetic. And then Good, Good Kid, Mad City came out and that was, he had a real identity. And then he went one step further with To Pimp a Butterfly, which I think is probably the better album, but I didn't choose it because it's not as definitely hip-hop, but I guess I couldn't speak on it so much. But that's so genre roulette, like you said. And then he had Damn and that um, unmastered, untitled album. And it became a lot more sort of like trap music, which I'm not particularly into personally. Which was the style at the time. Oh, God, it's the style at this time. Trap's huge. <laughs> yeah, that's depressing, isn't it? Um... it? Trap is a weird music. It's so Indeed. formulaic, man. It's, it's crazy. It's the same BPM every time, the same hi-hat every time. Yeah, you can say that about other genres, though, as well. I guess they'd say that about rock, you know, they go, it's just a guitar of every time and some guy screaming. <laughs> yeah. Wait till they hear my rock, it's going to be some guy screaming, but lower. <laughs> <laughs> Low screaming. It's the new trend, started by Declan Kitchener. Just like crooner screaming. <laughs> it had to be you. I never <laughs> I think one thing you can really say about hip-hop music that really distinguishes it from rock is that hip-hop music is very much the creation of a studio space. It's a creation within a computer. It's a creation of a sampler as opposed to like the creation of uh, you know musicians in a room trying to play together. 
whether that is a good or a bad thing it depends entirely on your taste on the quality of the music that is eventually output but it's kind of I think it's probably the main genre you could say about that other than like EDM or something yeah no I, I completely agree um that said I think the hip-hop I like the best is either like I say it has elements of live instrumentation or kind of touches on the sort of early days of of hip-hop's you know origins in the terms of the way it kind of all started was um people would have these street parties and stuff and then you'd have the dj was the star of the show this person who would just literally play records and then it got to a point where you know people would start to need loops um so that the mc or master of ceremony could you know talk about who's at the party who's coming can somebody please move their car (laughs) you know you're blocking somebody (laughs) out that sort of thing and so people would get two different no, two of the same records. Like, they both get, like, um, Amen Brother, but, like, twice and just, like, play it on each deck and just, like, switch between. So the DJ kind of got his start there. And then people would just start rapping over that. And it, it was such a, from what I've read, such a cultural thing and such a, um organic thing. I think the best hip-hop kind of captures that real live energy, which is kind of c- comparable, I think, to, like, you know, if four or five guys get together in a room and play guitar and drums and bass um except a bit more community focused or something well the difference is that it puts all the emphasis on the vocal and like the uh performance of that uh rather than on having to learn a structured piece of music if that makes sense oh definitely like, That's it's, a good it's point. very much it's much more improvisational or it can be yeah definitely it's not like they're kind of sitting down and going okay right tonight at the party i really want this to go well okay so if you could just play that record and then switch to this record um on the second verse and then we'll stop and then i'll play some bass it's like it's so not like that it's like it's to do with the vibe of what's going on in the moment exactly yeah it's kind of gives it a really sort of uh unique flavor that then sort of gets it imported back into sort of more rock projects like um I've, I've sort of debating whether to talk about these guys but like Gorillas, for example I don't know if they count as a rock band or not but they're obviously very influenced by hip hop because I think they've been described as like an animated rock band but then they're also really not you look at some songs like Dirty Harry and things like that things with the hip-hop um thing with gorillas is it can be seen as that quite easily because it's got well rappers first of all are involved in, in quite a few of the songs and then some of the productions like that but i always thought it was much more of a sort of like home studio project like where it's got that vibe definitely um that gorillas is a funny project because it's almost like on paper it's exactly what i'd like in in music but for some reason the records don't really do anything for me do they for you uh the hits do a lot um mm. there are some songs that i really absolutely love like feel good inc melancholy hill dirty harry is a great one uh i kind of like dare for just sort of how like dancey electronic like this is unashamedly just uh <laughs> just a dance record essentially but um I don't think the albums speak to me as much. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is either. I, I, you know, I'm not sure if it's like, oh, lack of 
songwriting, but then, like you say, with the hits, there's, um, like, Feel Good Inc., for example, has definite sections and that sort of thing. I don't know. Um, it's obviously a very talented group of people who were involved in that project, um, but, I don't know, just never sort of done it for me, and I wish it had. That's, that's fair. Uh, oh, I've completely forgotten everything that I was going to say. But that is kind of an example of... um. Like rock merging with another genre or like genres uh, to sort of create uh, something that is not one or the other, but it's something new or something distinctive that you, no serious rock fan or no serious hip hop fan, would say, oh yeah, that's definitely completely 100% all of ours. There have been a few projects like that over the years. One, I, my sort of favourite go to project for that is the. This isn't hip hop, this is opera, but it's Freddie Mercury, Montserrat Caballé, uh, the Barcelona album. is so not rock but it's so not opera it's this weird space in the middle and i love it to bits because it's so stupid but clever but stupid <laughs> it's original you can definitely say that for sure yeah that's the thing it's using um the two genres as like a springboard to sort of create something unique yes definitely yeah i mean that's the cool thing about getting two different heads together and seeing what happens when they collaborate especially from two different worlds um you know uh that's a great example and then you have uh things like uh not that i'm into this but like snoop dogg and sting like what does that sound like that's a project that's out there Um, oh sting and shaggy have done one as well i can tell you that one isn't very good (laughs) (laughs) had to listen to it at work for ages oh sting well he's he's involved with everybody yeah except his own his old band <laughs> except except the thing that got him famous and people love him for mm. well he's had some good solo records uh i feel we're drifting <laughs> on the way back to rock again it's hard not to it's kind of all we talk about yeah this is <laughs> this is our lives so uh what about you what are some albums that you know for you are great non-rock albums I think the sort of overriding theme that sort of came out of uh, looking through my record collection is there's a lot of soul in there. Like, a lot, a lot of soul. Um, ah. In particular, people like Marvin Gaye, Donnie Hathaway, uh, Aretha Franklin, obviously, and then, like, the big one, Stevie Wonder. Mm, of course, yeah. Because although they... Although Soul kind of did get a bit infected by the rock thing, particularly when you uh, consider the influence of things like Motown, it is very much separate from all of that. Like, you listen to songs in the key of life and there are songs like As, which you couldn't really call a rock song in any, uh, like, honest way. But it's sort of, like, just elevate to this sort of other level of soul. Yeah, um, Songs in the Key of Life is a really interesting record to me because 
I don't think of it as a rock record either, but there's so many moments on it which you can tell wouldn't have existed without, you know, rock becoming a really influential thing. Songs like Contusion and stuff, you know? Yeah, this is a danger when you sort of uh, look at 60s and 70s music where that sort of thing is being um, sort of absorbed by every other genre on earth. You even look at things, for example, uh, Aretha Franklin on one of her albums, she does a version of uh, Border Song, Holy Moses, uh, which is originally a rock version because that's um, Elton John. But then you hear her version and it's like, oh no, this is a soul record. Mm, right. This has been absorbed into into this other genre. that um with sort of uh genres being combined and that sort of thing and, and soul particularly um i i've been on this sort of like i've been asking and looking around on the internet for for ages to try and find a really good gospel record um because i follow a lot of gospel musicians on youtube you know like individual musicians like a drummer or like i follow like a really influential uh keyboardist like Corey henry or somebody and I'm like, hmm. what they're playing and what they're doing with chords is so appealing to me. And the way they structure things and the little breaks and like uh, riffs and licks and stuff they do. I'm like, okay, I want to hear an album like that. And I can't find one. It's really weird. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh, it's kind of weird how sort of not commercially available that sort of stuff tends to be. I think because it gets lumped in with soul most of the time. Mm. Or people just tend to use it as a flavour. Like, for example, uh, the gospel sections on Somebody to Love, you know. That's the gospel song in the Queen catalogue. Compared to, like, you know, trying to do, like, a full-on gospel record. I think the closest I've managed to find is some of uh, a slightly earlier Aretha Franklin. But even then, that's getting more into, like, funky, solely kind of territory. Yeah, yeah. It it, it is, it's true. Um, I thought... I'm thinking of all these different genres now that I didn't think of before, like country music, you know? I was going to touch on that very briefly because I've only heard four country records in my life. <laughs> but, uh... I uh, I like this one uh, called Stardust by Willie Nelson, which is which is a, a cover record or like a standards record where he plays a bunch of, uh, like, you know, All of Me and all these sort of standards. And uh, yeah, Stardust is a great country record to start with. You took part that one. I need to get on to more Willie Nelson. I know you and Josh both love him. He's really uh, good, yeah. Yeah, the only ones I've heard are two Dolly Parton albums and two Johnny Cash albums. That said, all four of them have been really, really good, so it's just like, oh, okay, I need more money and more time. 
Yeah. Oh, another great... Um, I'm literally just going off the top of my head here, but another great country record is um, is by Ween, funnily enough. It's called 12 Golden Country Greats. That's a really good record, because that was made with, like, you know, the uh, Nashville, you know, top-of-the-game recording artists who all recorded with Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and stuff like that. Um, so that's another good point. The guys who are never, ever, ever out of work. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> And those guys, by the way, they um, they kind of use the same system that you and I do. Like, if you go to play with these guys, even if they don't know each other and they don't know you, you bring along your new song and you give them a lead sheet, but it doesn't say, like, G, C, D. It'll just say 1, 4, 5, or, like, minor 4. And they just do, like, a. it's called, uh, I think it's called the, just the numbers system, I think they call it. So you go, ah, yeah, we got a we got a six four five one here, and they'll, they'll all know how to play it, and they'll all know, all know little licks, which I think is a really cool way of playing music. Yeah, I I I can't really think of that from songs that I write. I have to think into chord shapes, uh, chord names, until I sort of start shifting things about. At that point, it becomes numbers. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't go to a session like that and go, okay, so this is a two, a six, a major seven, a three. Uh, minor four, and this is in the key of a flat. <laughs> right, yeah, and I can, I can definitely, I can definitely understand that. For me, it's like when I heard that, I was like, oh, that I can really resonate with that because, you know, I'll down tune a lot, um, and uh, so e- instead of playing like E minor, I'll think, oh, that's the six or whatever it is, you know. Um, not like anyway, this is off topic anyway, but it is interesting the way they do that in country music. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Country is really interesting because it's one of the genres that's still like massively popular, and it's one of the few that sort of predates rock and hasn't absorbed much from rock, because a lot of country fed into early American rock. Even as late as the seventies, you'd have bands like the Eagles and everything like still drawing on country. Hmm. So it's it's kind of um, a lot of it still retains that sort of pre-rock uh, attitude because so much of it went into rock at least that's my very basic reading of it yeah i go with that i think also um maybe it retains such a relative purity compared to other types of music because it's so culturally significant you know um i've watched a couple of documentaries on country music and from what people say it seems to be sort of the music of the people about the people you know and i think that when you have something so connected to culture and the population itself of a country or even like a few states you know like the nashville sound is so signature you know Hmm. it's kind of interesting though because it's very much the sound of the american people mm. like the, you know country is very definitely an american genre um and that it still enjoys like sort of a worldwide following to some extent uh it's kind of surprising a little bit, but not surprised when you think of like America as being like the dominant force in all of media that you're only beginning to see now are things like K-pop uh, becoming popular over here. I don't know how big it, um, bands like BTS are in America. Mm. It's kind of interesting, like how much sort of cultural dominance sort of has on like uh, essentially exporting homebrewed genres that, you know, a lot of country songs, the subjects don't necessarily work outside their country of origin but it's still popular so it's kind of it's kind of weird yeah it's interesting how um, but not weird but weird but not weird but weird it's interesting how um the 
the sort of rap genre, and again, that's a big umbrella like rock, um, is so divided by sort of nation and culture at this point. Like in America, the big thing seems to be R&B influenced trap music, you know, in terms of like what's being enjoyed in the mainstream. And then over here, grime seems to be taking off in a big way. And well, with Stormzy's sort of um, Stormzy's success, that sort of really pushed that back into the spotlight. Yeah, totally. As far as I can tell, it's just interesting how like grime has it. It doesn't do well in America, from what I've seen. It's like um, it doesn't have that following that trap does over there. And I think, but trap translates over here to a certain extent well it's kind of interesting that that sort of rap has sort of of, or hip-hop i should say has devolved into sort of more localized genres as the world as it spreads over the world but something like country doesn't hmm yeah because yeah it's not like there's you know i don't know i mean that's the thing to us talking about this we don't know what's going on the rest of the world but it's not like in india people of there's this giant country scene which we see on the news and stuff you know <laughs> i think probably the thing you can sort of say about why uh country doesn't get uh anglified essentially is because of the stronger folk traditions here mm. uh particularly in terms of folk music but then they do have that in america as well with people like bob dylan uh and that sort of uh Joni mitchell like all those sort of folk singer songwriters that sort of became part of the sixties counterculture movement. So it's it's it, it's weird when you sort of look at like the social impact of genres of music. And I'm still going to say genre is a meaningless concept at the end of this, but it's interesting to note like what effect it does have on locations and how music sort of spreads. I've heard you say that before about genre being a meaningless concept. Um, what makes you say that? I'm just interested. Um. Essentially, it comes down to the fact that music is music. My point is more normally that genre isn't baked into songs. Like, you could take a fantastic reggae song and turn it into a synth-pop track. You could take a rap hit and turn it into a rock song. So, at the end of the day, it's more like about the actual song being a qualifier. Obviously, genre will have some... uh, meaning as a way to sort of distinguish this is a rock track so it has guitars this is a jazz track so it will have uh, strings and piano or something like that but even then those terms are meaningless because the instruments keep switching around you have bands like ELO which have uh, entire orchestras behind them and you have like uh, like guitar based jazz so it's uh, genre is essentially just a way to artificially divide music that's my view on it said the guy who wanted to do a non-rock episode <laughs> no I, I i understand that makes sense it makes me think of something that um john bryan once said um which was that you can look at songs in two different ways broadly speaking uh what did he say one of one of which is like the words chords and lyrics and melody you know what i mean like the on paper this is what the song is in the way that irving berlin would pre- present a song he'd give you the paper and you could arrange it in a rap way a reggae way and this and then the other way you can look at it is is the love of a certain performance so you go oh man i love that song hurt who which is by you know trent Reznor. people go no 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 the johnny cash one that particular recording when he sang it that way it's like so in that way genre holds a lot more um credence uh 
than it does if you just look at it in terms of like like I do and like you do quite often a set of nice chords a set of melody which you can then put a fuzzy guitar on or a ukulele you know it doesn't matter which I think that's uh, an interesting point to sort of realize that genre lies more in definition of recording uh than it does uh to the words written down it's almost like um if you have a script for a play you can produce uh it as a tragic play or a comic play obviously there's going to be certain things in that play that will lead you to one way or the other but you know you can still play against the lines as it were and you can have elements of both this is kind of like where i'm at with genre it's like at best it's a guideline and at worst it's meaningless because we were talking about this earlier rock is kind of like a meaningless uh genre name when you look at things like carol king that get uh classed as rock and you also get foo fighters which are classed as rock like do the recordings have much in common with each other I I really agree. You just got me thinking about genre now. This is interesting. Cause like, <laughs> cause, yeah, we have gone very far off topic here. Because, like, I think when when a songwriter writes a song, um, it's almost like that song is meant for them. And it's it's difficult to detach a songwriter from his surroundings. So if somebody comes up with a reggae song in Jamaica, to be very stereotypical, um, you know their their culture the people around them the musicians around them even will almost subconsciously shape how that song comes into being so they'll get their pen and paper and their guitar or whatever and they'll write down the skeleton of the song but also implied in that and almost maybe even heard because a lot of people hear the music that they write down and i i I definitely do you know when i come up with a song i i hear it in my head um and it, it has genre attached to it so like yes i can take it to somebody else who would then go, oh, we're going to make this a jazz standard style song. But I think whoever writes the song has an implicit genre attached to it. And I don't mean like a really specific, like how you'd categorize it in a library. I just mean like if you come from, uh, you know, uh, the East, you're going to have a certain number of notes in that, in that scale that you wrote from. And it's almost like, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, the songwriter can't be detached from his surroundings. Yeah, it's it's kind of like it makes sense that Dave Grohl writes rock songs because of you know the communities that he's been involved in, the bands that he's been involved in, the people that he's known. Mm. Uh, or is it make, also kind of makes sense for Aretha Franklin to make soul music because of like her background, her history, and everything that happened in her life? Yes, yeah, so, definitely. But that doesn't necessarily link permanently to the song. Like there are very few instances I can think of where like a set of chords or melodies on their own will give you a sense of genre. Yes, that's uh, that's an interesting We're point. completely destroying the topic this week. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, I like going off topic. It's fun. feels uh, oh. off-road. I think uh, a lot of what we've been talking about uh, is like commercially released music for... Uh, you know, for the sake of being in an album or being a single or like being music to be listened to in that context. It's kind of interesting when you sort of see things that sometimes class as genre, which actually have an impact on the functionality of the music. Like, for example, uh, soundtrack music. Mm. A lot of my non-rock music 
has ended up being like soundtracks whether that be disney soundtracks or the soundtracks to star wars or like the doctor who soundtracks or soundtracks of songs for the simpsons where like genre then necessarily does have an impact on the music that's being created yeah no that's a good point i think yeah soundtrack is it's such a different ball game isn't it it's like you can't it's so easily categorized as uh as being attached to whatever it you know the visuals you know what i'm saying like with star wars or whatever it's so tied to that um because otherwise you could kind of categorize it as classical music or something you know in most cases yes it's kind of interesting that it's it's sort of listed as a genre a lot of the time and i list uh soundtrack as genre just for ease of reference in my library but it's not really a genre it's more like a function of the music like it's one of the few instances where music isn't written to be music music is written to be backing so like for example on the simpsons soundtrack a lot of the comedy songs on there are like a minute long at maximum because they're written to fit into a 22 minute episode of time yeah or like uh if you listen to for example the soundtrack to the empire strikes back uh you're probably going to get bored of the melody for the Imperial March because it pops up so often if you're just listening to it as a classical suite. But then if you actually link that with the picture, you know, the Imperial March has a function that isn't related to, you know, making good music. It's used to denote the presence of the Empire and of Darth Vader and all of that. It's kind of interesting to sort of see music as a function rather than as its own end. Yes, definitely. Um, And I'm sure everyone's had this experience where you'll watch a full two-hour movie whatever and you'll get emotionally attached to the characters and the surroundings and the aesthetic of the film and the story and you'll be you know tearing up or laughing or whatever you are and then at the end of the film or during the film a song plays like a like from an album you know like an elliot smith song plays or something like that and then you get Mm. so attached to that song you go oh my god this is the best song ever and the reason you say that i think is because like you've just spent this whole time identifying and attaching to this character's narrative and then suddenly the song plays and then quite often you go and visit the song after you go on youtube i've got to find that song you find it you go yeah it's really good but it's it it will never have that emotional resonance that it did when i watched the whole film in context yeah it's kind of like it acts then as a part of a whole which uh in the case of found music like for example songs found on closing credits that most of the time wasn't designed to be that way but it's interesting like how you experience music sort of ends up uh sort of defining your relationship with it a little bit yes definitely um speaking of uh soundtrack music as well another soundtrack um i've gotten into like this week like the past two days um something that my friend recommended to me is this song uh crazy and no, no, song this uh tv series on netflix crazy ex-girlfriend have you heard of that uh no i haven't actually i don't have netflix oh of course yeah well it's a very um modern take on a musical and it's kind of got like it's it's a full tv show with characters and the story and everything but they they burst into song at certain points which isn't the most original thing but the songs are so good i've got to send you one of these because uh my friend sent me this the other day and it's uh it's this song where it's it's these sort of like close-ups of these individual people and they're all alone and they feel like they're the only one who's like this in the world and they're singing this song uh where they're like nobody knows this song but me and like in the chorus they go they have all these different syncopations and beats where like 
one person will go, you know, if they knew this song at the same way as me, and like that, but they're all singing it together, like in split screen. I can't mm. explain it, but it's really good, and it's musically very interesting. You'd love the chords in these songs. Yeah, I think that's kind of like one thing I do love in a soundtrack where you look and you sort of find, oh wow, there's actually like this wasn't just like thrown together for the TV or for the film, whatever it was. Mm. Uh, these songs actually like have a lot of bits to them. Like uh, my favorite example of that is Alan Menken, "Poor Unfortunate Souls" for The Little Mermaid. That song's got so many weird chords in it, and it moves in some really weird places as the tension increases throughout the scene and the song speeds up. When they can, but they don't inform on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul. Go ahead, make your choice. I'm a very busy woman and I haven't got all day. It won't cost much, just your voice. You poor unfortunate Right. So, yeah, cracking crack work on that one. Well, well done, Disney. That's a cool thing about like like <laughs> <laughs> about like um, yeah. music being written for like animation or like a TV uh, musical or something like that is that because something's being said and conveyed through a character, there's points where the chords will have to change to convey that message and the tempo will have to change. So you get if you listen to it even by itself, you just get these amazing arrangements, which sound so creative and complex, which probably wouldn't be warranted if it wasn't for the fact that it's being matched to something on the television screen. Yeah, how many soundtracks have you listened to where like they'll do like a line where a character does an action in the middle of it or go on for a couple of bars doing some weird twiddly bit that just makes no sense if you listen to it out of context? <laughs> yes, where where like the twiddly bit is just bridging somebody moving from one end of the room to the other in the screen, you know? <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, some good stuff with that. Oh, man, you know... Another... Uh, it's interesting Sorry, that... Go on, go on you were making no, a point. Uh, no, uh, you do first. I was going to say another soundtrack, which is great, is uh, for music and the what's matched to it on the screen is La La Land, you know? Yeah, that's actually got, like... Um, that soundtrack is like a mix of, like, sweet pieces, like The End, and then it's also got, obviously, your uh, popular songs in it, which is most of the songs in the film. Mm. But it also sort of uses sort of production uh, to sort of signify like the uh, sort of relative validity of the music that's being presented or at least the way it's presented in the film so like uh, a lot of the numbers in that film sort of very sound relatively natural based around piano and things like that but then you've got like the inverted commas evil song which is a bit more produced than what you'd expect like on a uh like a modern jazz record yeah yeah and it's interesting to use to sort of it's it's basic obviously but to use that sort of technique to sort of impart meaning and sort of tell you something a little bit about the characters yeah definitely and uh it's one of those ones as well where you know you and i both have the soundtrack album and you can kind of listen to the album by itself and kind of get like a mini experience of the film Mm. which i like it's kind of like there's a couple of good uh, anchor points in the sweet music. Like I think it's at the is it the observatory where like you have the moments where like it goes 
Da, pause. Da, 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 da. Uh, and you sort of like link that immediately to like them dancing through the clouds and everything and like them floating in the air and like uh, I still remember the shot of like Emma Stone just looking at the camera just shaking her head like nope <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um, La La Land's brilliant that's, uh, that's one that will stick with me for years it's really good really good just musically but also a fantastic film and non-rock mostly one out of one uh, which I think leads us on to uh Jazz, and I think there's only really one jazz artist that I can talk about outside of outside of the film La La Land uh, is Nina Simone. I've really gotten into like her works recently. It's just it's kind of odd. You sort of see like rock beginning to take more of an influence towards the mid '60s, and then as uh, the '60s go on, she becomes more and more like not focused on rock. <laughs> so like this. This little peak in the middle of it, which probably tops out with um, "I Got Life," uh, ain't got no "I Got Life," but then sort of declines as she goes later through the seventies and everything. You mean like "I Got Life" is sort of like the peak of the rock influence, or yeah, it's yeah. It, uh, to my ears, it's not like that invasive compared to what she did before. But like you look, is that listen to that one, and it sounds almost like a like a Motown track with just a boom boom da 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 ba ba da ba boom da 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 Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, she's fantastic. I mean, that that kind of speaks to that thing of genre kind of being irrelevant in a sense because you've kind of got all the components you'd ask for in a really good rock band with with her music i think you know you've got the arrangements you've got the songwriting you've got a fantastic singer and it's well recorded it's like it's kind of ticks all the boxes which don't really have a genre attached to them anyway like it's just a good artist but then you listen to some other songs like uh, cinnamon for example and Cinnamon is such a great ender to the Pastel Blues album. And it's got so much energy in it. But it's not a rock track. But it's released around the sort of same time that Beatlemania is taking off, the Rolling Stones are doing their first stuff, and you've got the British Invasion coming in. So that's having an influence, but it's still like this you know, high-paced jazz record, and it's just like, oh. Mwah. Mwah. Just like a mommy was to make. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh. Yeah I, yeah, I just wanted to wax lyrical about Nina Simone for a second or two. <laughs> no, no, I know that you're a big fan, um, and uh, oh, she's great. She's really good. Um, her live records. Jesus Christ, her live records are great. Oh, yeah? I've never heard of any. Oh, I think, um, I think it's Enough Said, which was recorded the day after Martin Luther King was shot. And that record sort of, you get like this sort of, these high points of like being tied up in the excitement of the music and then like it'll gut punch you with like 
you know, what she's saying about how unsafe she feels and like the events that have happened around her. It's like, oh god. <laughs> she's yeah. like saying that stuff between songs. You mean? Sometimes, yeah, and like oh. her moments where like she does a version of Mississippi Goddamn, where like towards the end she just uh, talking about like um oh uh yeah they keep telling us to do this non-violent revolution i don't i'm gonna tell you guys i don't feel like being non-violent anymore it's just like okay this is getting serious oh my god someone's tired are we the bad guys (laughs) (laughs) god you start um checking yourself while you listen to the record i guess And I think I'm finished squeeing over uh, Nina Simone there for a second. So, uh, if we hand if we hand this sort of baton or conversation back over to you, okay, sure. Um, uh, so, I mean, from Nina Simone to Nine Inch Nails, which is a logical step. Um, cool, awesome. So you sent yeah. over one of the tracks earlier. What album was it off? It was from the album Year Zero, which I just love. And again, I think it's so underrated. Everyone kind of goes, oh, Nine Inch Nails, you know, Pretty Hate Machine or The Downward Spiral and that sort of thing, which I get. But, man, Year Zero is very cool. I mean, it, it, I was not going to include it in my little list because it's got rock elements to it, but I think it, there's not really many guitars on the album. It's mostly like, Kind of, it's industrial music basically. It's like a modern take on industrial music. Like, um, uh, there's a lot of synths and a lot of very thick, heavy uh, sounds on it, which would could easily be guitars, but they're not. Yeah, exactly. And like, rather than bass quite often on that album, um, uh, Trent Reznor will use like a very low, uh, you know, digital kick drum, which is like detuned and has distortion added to it. And then he'll like pitch that around. So it's like very artificial in a sense, but, and a lot of it was recorded on tour, like in the van, um, just on his laptop, like not even a studio, just he would sit there on his laptop and just like click you know click 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 and just like put together drum programs and that sort of thing and i think that's a really interesting way of making music and one which i kind of go through little phases of sometimes myself um but yeah it's just great it's just they are well written songs but it's like a record like no other because it's so distorted and strange and yeah very very unique record i love it the way you uh sort of describe just clicking and not you know not playing things, but just like clicking and dragging things onto a sheet. It almost sounds like composing, like in the way that yeah. uh, classical composers don't play the instruments. They get an orchestra to do it, but they write down the score. So essentially what you have is like writing down the score onto a computer program that will play it. That's <laughs> such a good point. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it like that, Year Zero, that Nine Inch Nails record is basically a... Um, it's like a classical composition, but instead of an orchestra, you're using your computer and all the different sounds it can make. And that's what it sounds like. It sounds like a very well-orchestrated computer. Um, and the only really organic thing on the record is, is Trent Reznor's voice, which itself is quite often put through filters and stuff like that. 
Mm. I suppose that's one thing that you really can't do convincingly on uh, like any sort of synthesizer yet is like recreate the human voice from scratch. Uh, Some people would argue, why would you want to? Why don't you just make something like else that you can't do with the human vocals? But like, I think there's that quote you said about Zappa, like people like records with the human voice on for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so that's the one bit that can't be artificially copied at the moment. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, I think people like not only the sound of the voice, but um, to have a person who they can think about while they're listening to a record um, singing. You know, you look at Frank Zappa himself, for example, you go, oh, okay, I love this music, but I can hear what he's saying. I hear his sense of humour. I hear his problems with the government and stuff like that at the time and and that is all part of the listening experience whereas like instrumental music kind of lacks that in a way unless you can link it to some other uh emotional impact like for example soundtrack music like we were saying earlier but going back to frank zappa there for a second this is kind of another proof of why uh rock or genre in entirety but rock is kind of a meaningless label because technically Zapper is rock music. But yeah. I defy you to listen to something like um, Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast and tell any rock cover band, play that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As she abused the sausage patty and said, why don't you treat me me? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it, yeah, that that is a perfect example of somebody who you can't really categorize because, like, you look at like three of his songs in a row, and you go, "Yeah, rock, rock, rock," and then you look at the fourth one, and you go, "I don't what even know how to categorize that," or, or like an album of his, like Sleep Dirt, where you go, "It's a jazz album," and so it's like. Well, maybe genre works on songs and then lesser on albums and even less on artists, you know? The sliding scale of genre. <laughs> yeah. That's the title. Yeah, it has to be. That is, <laughs> has to be the title. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of what infuriates, infuriates me about genres that I work in a record shop. Mm. And you have so many people like saying, oh, uh, I want to buy a My Chemical Romance album. Okay, well, that's in the metal section. Well, why isn't it in the rock section? Or like, um, you know, I want to buy Stevie Wonder. Oh, that's in Soul. Why isn't it in Pop? Yeah. I think it's the over-willingness to sort of stick one genre on something and say, yep, that works for everything contained within this recording. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but it's just people have to categorise, don't they? People like categorising and making things, in their eyes, simple. Well, uh, I think I've said before, but like, if everything fails uh, when I grow up, I just want to have a record shop uh, where everything is listed from A to Z. No <laughs> genre, nothing else, just a stack of shelves, A to Z. I like so that idea find, a lot. So you can find Antonio Vivaldi right next to Annie Lennox, and it's fine. But then, and I agree, I'd like that type of record shop, and I wish they existed, but then you'd have the people who go hey, look, I, I like jazz. That's my thing. I dig jazz, and I just want to come in here and get some jazz records. And I want to find some new jazz records I've never found before. 
And then usually they can go to the jazz section, but all of a sudden they know they like Miles Davis, but how are Does they going to really they... do that anymore? How are they going to find YouTube exists for that? Well, you, I guess you could say YouTube exists instead of record shops in a way, you know? Oh, that hurts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, on a broad scale, that's all I mean. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. But I, this wouldn't be like a shop to run, be run for the sake of like making money or you know for the love of doing it. This would be a shop run just to make a point. I like it. <laughs> that should be the <laughs> this name. This is of the a show. shop run by spite. <laughs> <laughs> spite records <laughs> at the top of a really tall hill that people have to climb up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just loads of like leaflets at the bottom saying, "Oh, it's amazing! It's revolutionary!" And when you get to the top, oh, we just stack everything A to Z. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I I would I would be a big fan of that record shop. It would close within a week. <laughs> <laughs> Not if I could help it. Oh dear. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Where do we go next with this conversation? I've got a couple of extra albums here on my list. Continue. I don't have a list. I'm literally just talking and making things up. But continue. Um. The Roots are a very good band. Um, because they are one of the few bands you can point to who are a hip-hop band without many other, like, definite influences. It's not like they have this... It's not like Papa Roach, where you have this distorted guitarist playing and then a guy, Fred Durst, rapping over that. It's not like that. It's it's like they are hip-hop, but there's, like, 12 of them, you know, so which is quite unique, if you think of it, because usually um, in that genre you have, like, the producer or DJ producer slash dj and then you have you know one two three four or five mcs whereas with this it's like you have one mc um tariq trotter and then you have a drummer a bassist a tuba player a contrabassoon player um a guitarist um, a percussionist and all these guys and they just they just make this music together so they all have to be very good instrumentalists uh but they play in that genre which i think is a really cool thing and i think they've they've got some great records out there loads of them actually I still need to give The Roots a listen. You've given me a list of albums before to listen to, and I've just <laughs> never found the time, sadly. Well, you've always got quite a lot of albums on the on the, on the the go anyway, haven't you, listening-wise? Yeah, and and less and less space on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm surprised your computer isn't full by now. You've got, got a bunch of stuff. I've, I've had to delete stuff off of it. Like, I'm deleting audiobooks off at the moment once I listen to them. Right, right. Um... I think a great example from The Roots in terms of a great album is... Uh, God, what do I want to say for this one? Probably uh, Things Fall Apart. That's really good. Hmm. For anyone who's interested. Yeah, I mean, it's just cool to see people playing as as a band, you know? Yeah, I. It's it kind of links back to what we were saying earlier. It's like enjoying uh, sort of the human interaction between musicians, uh, particularly in a genre like hip hop where it's relatively rare. Yeah, definitely, and it, it's it's interesting as well um, to see a band play, who a band I don't understand as much as I do. Like for example, I can't play like the Eagles, but I can watch videos of the eagles and i can go i can kind of see what they're doing uh, at least i can kind of comprehend the drummer's playing this type of beat and the uh 
you know the chords. I could see what chords are being played, and I could recognize them. Whereas you, you could learn the song essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I can maybe sit in and play a very basic version of what the bass is playing, for example. Whereas with something like if you look at um, John Coltrane or Miles Davis or you know Nina Simone or anyone like that, you can kind of see what key it's in. But what they're doing on the stage and between them as musicians is a lot more alien to me because I, I haven't practiced playing in bands like that. I've only ever played in rock or pop bands, so it's interesting to see that. Well, I've tried um, uh, jamming along to Miles Davis kind of blue before I got completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, jazz is crazy. I think jazz is to musicians what chords are to non-musicians, you know? Like, you just look at it and you go... May, like maybe if your ear's good you can tell what key it's in for a minute before it changes key and then the little changes they do with the subs and the and the and the scales they play like those people know their scales and they don't just know their minor major and pentatonic scales they know like they're playing in lydian for a whole piece or something like that and it, it's admirable it's admirable to see admirable to see people um play at such a high level you know jazz it's also infuriating because you can't do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly the, the, i mean i have this i have this thing with jazz where like i'm not a big jazz listener but like i'll, I'll find some from time to time especially jazz standards and people playing gypsy jazz or something like that and i won't try and learn it because i know it's far too difficult but one little lick will stand out or one little thing somebody does over a certain chord in the scale i'll go oh that's good and i'll learn that and then i'll be done for like the next six months and i'll come back to jazz later <laughs> yeah i've done my jazz for this half of the year <laughs> next year i'll learn two more things <laughs> <laughs> oh i think i've said this on the podcast before but my favorite piece of uh chordal guitar playing advice came from a gypsy jazz guitarist uh he was playing the song he's doing like those are really weird quick changes and i came up went up to him afterwards and i just go oh dude that's amazing like can you show me like what you were doing there and he just goes oh yeah i was just playing this chord and then i was just moving it up and down the neck by semitones uh several times very quickly just so you couldn't tell that i was making mistakes <laughs> Like as many notes as close to each other as possible so it sounds weird and cool rather than just wrong. Oh, that's so funny. That reminds me of something um uh my friend in, in secondary school, he was a very good musician. Uh he went through quite a big jazz period and, and not only jazz but like learning his music theory like well. He really learned his stuff. And um I remember him saying to me once, If you ever play the wrong rhythm during a performance and somebody questions you on it, just say, I'm playing a polyrhythm, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically, it's true as well. Exactly. They go, you were playing out of time. No, I wasn't. I'm just smart. (laughs) It's polyrhythm. It's just not synchronous polyrhythm. Yeah, man. I'm playing along to a song in my head, which I heard four years ago. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Jazz people are clever. Let's kill them. They really are. They really are. But then sometimes, do you ever get this with jazz where it's like, it's a... For me... I I think like it, sometimes it's a bit too much where it kind of takes away some of the what appeals to me about musicality. You know, if somebody's playing four chords in a row and then they take a solo over that, there's a certain amount you can do melodically with. Okay, I'm going to do this over the first chord, this over the second chord, and third and fourth. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Which actually sounds melodic is all I'm saying. And then sometimes with some of the more um, complex jazz stuff, and this was even a problem with the jazz world, I think from the bits and pieces i've watched documentaries wise where 
the chords moved so much. Like you could subdivide four bars of chords into 32 chords or like 64 chords because you change so much and add different subs in to the point where it becomes kind of a cacophony apart from to those who are playing it and understanding the actual theory behind it but i think jazz reached a point where it kind of reached the peak of what you could do with subs and like complicating a chord progression and a melody and then kind of like reined it back and became sort of the herbie hancock early 70s era of jazz um mm. But you ever get that where it just it sounds, it sounds non-musical to you? Uh, bits and pieces sometimes, yeah. Mm. Uh, but then, like I, I sort of look at that more as like a technical display. Like you know, this is stuff that I will never be able to play because I can't move my fingers fast enough. I can't <laughs> think that quickly, so I can sort of appreciate it in that way. But I think, like you sort of hinted at there, like melody sort of wins over in the end, which is, you know, why the Beatles are still popular. That's relatively simple music, but, you know, it's got very strong melodies and, you know, it's got loads of catchy hooks and, you know, it's fun and optimistic. You know, there's there's room on this planet for having your simple free core pop songs and having your overcomplicated jazz freakouts. Like, you know, you can have both. Zappa had them both together. That's true, and that's why he was <laughs> so good. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, I suppose uh, maybe jazz musicians who are really into that complexity might look at, um, you know, our <laughs> our um, nine-chord songs in the same way that we might look at, like, a two-chord song. You know, not necessarily that it's bad or anything, but you look at it and you go, I, I can see what's going on. You know, it's cool, but, you know, not for me. It's a little too... Uh, uh, primary or whatever yes but uh do they have a weekly jazz songwriting podcast i don't think so i bet i bet there's two two jazzers out there um smoking is that really what you want to call them (laughs) (laughs) and just talking about chords (laughs) oh that sounds ideal let's make that podcast the weekly jazz podcast the weekly jazz podcast by two people who know nothing about it. And our our, um, our tagline could be, we all not smoking reefer. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I like that Simpsons episode where Bart becomes a jazz drummer. Uh, Might have even been a later one. I know there's one where he comes a bit drummer and he becomes really quick. Is that the focusing one? No, the focusing one is the baseball. Um, I think it is a later one. It might well be. It might be one of the few good later Simpsons episodes, but he becomes a jazzer and a, a jazz musician. And um, <laughs> I think there's a bit in that, isn't there, where um, he meets up with the White Stripes on a corner and they sort of do the uh, hardest button to button chase. Oh yeah, no, you're right. That is that's true. Yeah, that must be a later one then, because I can remember yeah, the animation. One. The animation was like way more um, like CGI computer looking. Well, it was still hand-drawn at that point. Was it? Yeah, it only went to sort of computer animation, I think, the time they switched to HD. Oh, right. Oh, it just looked like it was... Which was about season 21-ish. It just looked to me like it was, um... Like uh, they used computer com- coloured or something. Yeah, they used computer colouring as early as season 8. but um, And they got cleaner with the animation as, like, obviously, because it was a high-profile prof- show, more money got pumped into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like season one where everyone's off model all the time. <laughs> Come on, boy. Yeah. 
Let's go get some chocolate frosted milkshakes. <laughs> Let's celebrate for the combination s- of chocolate and milk. <laughs> we have gone so far off topic. <laughs> I feel like we've got to allow that because we didn't have a real plan <laughs> today. That's fair. I mean, <laughs> like, Plus, I don't know what the end point for this discussion is. I wonder this sometimes. I wonder if, like, the shows where we're too structured are, like, less enjoyable to listen to and the shows where we're a lot more sort of, you know... Um, just off the top of our heads are a bit more human or something well leave comments write emails um organize protests if (laughs) you if you have any strong opinions on 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 that because we would genuinely love to hear them so we can tailor our content to make it better (laughs) hey i got a question for you have you yeah do you think do you think you'd uh ever make a like a, a a non-rock genre album, like a jazz album or something, or a soul album. I'd love to make a soul album, but I have not got the pipes for it. Um, I don't know, actually. Uh, I don't think I can make a jazz record because I'm not that smart. Um, I think the closest I could do would be like some sort of folky record. But even then, it would just be rock, just not plugged in. I don't think I could. I don't think I think I think too much in terms of rock or like rock aesthetics. Hmm. Yeah, I um I I wonder cuz you know I was just thinking about what you were saying earlier with um sort of being able to take a set of chords and lyrics and melody um and kind of apply it to any genre. I wonder if if you know we could do that with our style of songs for example. Well, you, you've had bits of that where you like produce hip hop and everything. But I think the thing is, you haven't performed hip hop vocally, so far as I'm aware. Yeah, no, it's kind of a different, uh, almost like a different project in a way. Um, whenever I make anything that's hip hop, because it's not like I'm making a hip hop beat and then I'll sing one of my songs over it, because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, Do we want to get back to the uh, to the skeleton EP? Oh man, don't mention that. <laughs> People cannot hear that. It's still up on your Bandcamp. I know it's because I'm. A weirdo completist and I have to have everything up there. <laughs> weirdo completist unite. <laughs> I I might take it down one day actually. No, don't do that. Actually, people I, need I just to, realized that's people option. need a frame of reference. <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? So I just realized I have that option, I could take it down. I need to actually set up my band camp soon. Like Ooh, that's thing. exciting. Yes. It really is, yeah. you know. I also need to set up root note as well. I need to do a lot of this stuff. Yeah, just do one thing a day. There's not actually that much to do when you actually get down to it. Mm. So that's it for this episode of the Weekly Song Podcast. Cheers very much for listening. If you have anything you'd like to say about anything that we've said in the show, why not get in touch at weeklysongpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a comment if you're listening to us on a service that has a commenting system. Uh, you can follow us on Spotify. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud. Uh, we're on Podbean, apparently. Uh, iTunes as well. Leave us a five-star comment review thingy there. Uh, and... Yeah, I think that's the only places I can think that we're in that I can remember. Uh, where can I find your music, Roger? You can find my music on Spotify, Apple Music, um, and Bandcamp, which is rogerheathers.com. Um, I'm also active on Instagram, which is at rogerheathers, and uh, I'm working on a bunch of stuff at the moment, so if you're interested in following me, then please do. I also just put out a, um, a sort of uh, online 
book of drawings and writings yesterday. So Instagram's the place to be if you want to uh, follow me. Uh, yeah, you've been very active on that recently. I'm trying. Um, yeah. You can get like little sneak peeks of the projects he's working on as well. Um, where can they find you? Nowhere. Oh, that's not true. Oh, but you, we should say you're working on some pretty spicy stuff. Um, yes, I've actually got into Moroccan spicy meatball cooking. <laughs> There's a reference for the old fans. Um, uh, no, that I'm working on a project to be released hopefully soon. But I, that's all I'm going to say because I could end up trashing the whole thing because I've got to the stage where I have to add vocals now and I hate doing vocals. I could just like get to the end of it and go, nope. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not good enough. Take it away. It sounded really good and it's cool to hear um, your weekly songs um, and other songs as well, but your weekly songs just produced up and sounding really good with you know a couple of great drummers and some your own overdubs it's, it's really cool I, th- I recommend everyone go follow Declan because um, he's going to be dropping some stuff it's really good this isn't it I don't even pay him for this <laughs> so yeah that's about it uh, we will be back for a new season of the podcast which will be starting on June the 5th so just keep an eye on uh, wherever you follow Weekly Song Podcast uh, and the new episode should be up on that date see you next time ta-ra ta-ra